1: It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. It looks like we're not done with COVID yet. Infections are slowly rising as a new variant emerges. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. It's not the dominant COVID strain yet, but it's got the attention of scientists.
2: We we're hoping it'll just fizzle out. But because it has so many new mutations, if it gets legs, then, then we're going to have a lot of infections and uh, and a tough uh, going for several weeks.
1: Plus, why it could take a year to get a passport or a global entry pass. And a book about TCM underground films and an excerpt of the Cinema Junkie podcast. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
0: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
1: San Diego saw a slight bump in COVID cases and hospitalizations at the end of July shedding a little light on what's ahead for cold and flu season. A new coronavirus variant has also gotten the attention of public health officials in recent weeks, and new research is emerging on long COVID. Here to tell us what we should all know about COVID and other respiratory infections this season is Dr. Eric Topol, founder of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back to Midday Edition.
2: Thanks, Jade. Great to be with you again.
1: Always glad to have you. Uh, It's been quite a while since we talked about COVID, but that doesn't exactly mean it's gone away. So, what can you tell us about where we stand with COVID today?
2: Right, Jay. Well, we kind of had a respite where the virus was circulating at low levels, and now it's on the uptick. And there's a few things going on at the same time. Firstly, uh, a variant known as EG5. Uh, started to show it had a growth advantage over the prior ones, such as the one that the new updated booster, which is called XBB15 is targeted for. So that one's kind of been cooking along. And then, um, we know that where that's headed, which is just going to add on uh, another mutation, make it a bit more challenging. At the same time, the virus, um, is, is kind of evolving further. There's, uh, separately, increases in wastewater detection of the virus and in hospitalizations, actually throughout the country, not big levels, but certainly uh, going in the wrong direction. Hmm. And then the, the, not, the other big thing, of course, Jade, is that there's a new variant that is very bad looking out there, that seven sequences have been detected now uh, in uh, five countries, And uh, that one is concerning because it's very different from any uh, version of the virus we've seen before.
1: What makes it different? I mean, obviously, its structure is a bit different, but does it impact people's health differently?
2: Yeah, we don't know that. And probably, if you had to bet, it wouldn't change the type of illness people would get. But the main thing, because it has more than 30 mutations different than the prior versions of the virus we've seen, it will be a challenge to our immune system. Uh, And so it could uh, cause a fair number of infections if it becomes um, one that transmits well. We don't know that yet. Today we learned it showed up in South Africa and Japan. And prior to that, there was one case in Michigan, uh, the UK, uh, three cases in Denmark and one in Israel. But we haven't yet seen it take off. And if it does take off, it could be some trouble that lies ahead. Uh, that's an unknown right now. You know, of course, Jay, we were hoping it'll just fizzle out, but because it has so many new mutations, if it gets legs, then then we're gonna have um, a, lot of, a lot of infections and, uh, and a tough uh, going for several weeks.
1: Uh, and that is the BA.2.86 you're talking about, right?
2: Exactly, yeah. So unfortunately, they have all these obscure names and yeah. numbers. But yes, that's the one that is the troubling right now because the vaccine booster that's supposed to be ready mid-September isn't gonna help much against that one since it's so different than, you know, the virus that we we have had vaccines, boosters, and infections previously. So it has a whole different look. Uh, that's a lot of new mutations. It's a lot like what we saw with Omicron initially when it had 30 new mutations but these are 30 different mutations. And so we could, if it gets transmissible, I'm hoping not, you know, that's what's going to cause the trouble, mainly because whatever defense we have is going to have some ability to uh, let this virus get around. And uh, it it shouldn't hopefully cause worse illness. In fact, you know, it, it, it might be less. It's just that it'll spread so widely. And as you know, and when the virus spreads, there's not just infections, but there's also the potential for a long COVID.
1: You know, a lot has changed in how coronavirus is handled now compared to just a couple of years ago. One piece of that seems to be with testing. It seems that fewer people are testing or at least relying solely on at-home tests. Uh, how does that change what we know about COVID in the community today?
2: Yeah, it changes a lot. Uh, the we don't really have that handle of the test results, how how many are positive, what percent that is. And that's why we're basically down to wastewater uh, as the only way to know if the virus is truly circulating at a higher level. And even hospitalizations are uh, we, not that reliable if we're looking across the country because certain states are not reporting those reliably. So we're down to wastewater as the main way to reflect what's going on, the dynamics of the virus. The other problem, of course, is testing used to be at low cost or free ever since the emergency phase uh, was stopped in May. That's no longer the case. And so testing has gone way down and uh, it's not a reliable metric anymore.
1: Hmm. You know, we've talked many times about long COVID, and you mentioned it earlier. Uh, It's something that medical researchers have really been trying to better understand. In your latest blog, Ground Truths, you looked at two studies about the effects of long COVID. Tell us uh, about these studies and, and what they found.
2: Right. Well, these were two studies within the Veterans Affairs, the largest healthcare system in the United States. But just to point out, These were individuals who were uh, in their average in their 60s, almost 90% men. So they don't really represent who is the prototypic patient person with long COVID, which is more apt to be a woman and ages between 30 and 39. Uh, So even with that caveat, though, these were two-year follow-up studies and basically what we saw in these large studies with millions of controls particularly in the in one particular uh, of a paper the other one was just more a two year follow of of the deaths but the main finding overall was that the symptoms and the organ multisystem involvement of covid the sequela go on you know well into throughout the second year uh more so in people who were hospitalized, but even in those who had mild or moderate COVID initially. So it's it's sobering news, and it's flanked by eight other studies from various countries which show similar things, but this was the first study to look at all the different organs like cardiovascular and neurologic and gastrointestinal and, and so on. So this was the most detailed assessment yet at two years.
1: Mm. You write that there are still known unknowns that lie ahead when it comes to long COVID. Fundamentally, what do you mean there? And what do we still need to learn about long COVID impacts that some people get from having COVID?
2: Right. Well, Jay, one of the ones I just mentioned, that is the, the population on the VA is not representative. So we need to know more about the usual person who gets long COVID. It's unpredictable, we know that much. But there are other things that are really troubling. So with polio, uh, the post-polio syndrome didn't show up till 30 years later. With the influenza 1918 pandemic, Parkinson's disease was only recognized as a major risk from that you know, 15 or more years later. And now we see even influenza 10 years later does pose an increased risk for Parkinson. So there are potential conditions that we haven't even seen yet that could manifest much later. The other thing, of course, is that you have uh, incomplete uh, uh, ascertainment. So, for example, we have a significant increase in autoimmune diseases after covid from four very large reports things like rheumatoid arthritis multiple sclerosis uh lupus and, and those types of conditions they weren't even looked at in the VA reports so things like that uh the, the diabetes the secondary effects of diabetes over many years not just the covid but what seemed to trigger the the covid uh, of diabetes so there's so many things that are still uh really in this Uh, unknown category. And we're going to have to follow this for years to come to really know what the overall impact, the harm that was rendered, uh, which of course still could be things that we haven't seen two years now, three and a half years at least, out from when uh, this whole pandemic began.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman speaking with Dr. Eric Topol about today's COVID outlook. And Dr. Topol, with these latest variants, what can you tell us about new boosters and variant proof vaccines? Uh, can we expect those anytime soon?
2: Mm, I wish. Um, the new booster will be a pretty good match for uh, the current variants and the ones projected in the weeks ahead, unless this BA286 gets uh, going. So uh, we're always chasing with these boosters. That's why we need a variant proof uh, vaccine that lasts longer, less side effects, um, and also nasal delivered vaccines and the monoclonal antibodies for the people who are immunocompromised. So today, Project NextGen, which is a $5 billion um, initiative, announced their first uh, awarding of grants of over a billion dollars towards these new things better vaccines, nasal vaccines, and the antibodies. So at least they're getting funded now because up until this point today, there wasn't any sign of of uh, proof of life. So things are moving forward, but we're not going to probably have a nasal vaccine in this country till at best latter part of next year. Pan-coronavirus vaccines will take even longer.
1: You know, I mean, it seems like that would be one's first intuition is to create a a pan vaccine and then even nasal vaccines. Why do you think that wasn't the first thing the medical community or pharmacists or drug companies rather that's that's more pointed right. uh,
2: went to. Great point, Jade, that you're getting at because what I think most people would prefer a vaccine that not just helps block severe Covid hospitalizations and deaths, but really gets at blocking the infections, so you feel safe wherever you are that you're not uh, at risk. And the nasal vaccines have the best shot to do that. The the historic problem is we only have one nasal vaccine out there, and it's a flu mist, uh, and it's not that effective. But none of the shots for flu are all that uh, effective either. So that has tainted the pharmaceutical companies to go after this. But there's already been some success stories. There's already a vaccine that's being used in India, you know, a booster nasal vaccine that's got good data on the immune response already and, and is out there in large numbers of people. There's many more that could go forward, some from the United States. So the funding from this new project, NextGen, could help us finally get to a nasal vaccine. And also, we have many candidates for a pan-coronavirus uh, vaccine that would knock out all these variants in the years ahead, but that will take longer just because to nail it down, that it really works against whatever you can do to mutate this virus, which we've learned a lot of different things, that it has a chance to to fend off all the future strains of this coronavirus. So, uh, eventually, we should get these added beneficial uh, tools to help protect all of us against um, COVID in the future. But unfortunately, it's taken too long uh, for various reasons.
1: For those who are due then um, for a vaccine, would you recommend that they get their boosters now or wait for for ones that are, are more specific to these new variants?
2: Yeah, I think holding off, because we're talking about just uh, a few weeks where the new uh, xbb 15 so-called monovalent, because it doesn't have the original strain uh, in it, that will be a better vaccine for what's going on right now. To get the so-called bivalent BA5, which was a year ago released in September, that one just doesn't match up well with where the virus is today. So it might give a bit more protection just because it kind of wakes up the immune system to respond, but it isn't really uh, close uh, to where the virus has evolved. So waiting a few weeks, uh, particularly in people who are 65 and older or immunocompromised, they're going to benefit from getting the new booster.
1: Now, aside from COVID, flu and RSV have also been major concerns this time of year. What do we know about the outlook for those this year?
2: Well, as opposed to COVID, these are seasonal as you can predict when they're going to hit and the the duration of the season, so that's good because you can time the vaccine knowing that we have for the first time you know RSV vaccines approved for um, uh, people who are older and for pregnant uh, women, and also of course we've had flu shots which we hope will align. They're always trying to predict where the flu um, is going to evolve, the, the new strain. But we have ways to protect, uh, particularly people who are at risk. Uh, And uh, the RSV uh, is a breakthrough just because since 1956, when this virus was first discovered, we've never had a vaccine. And now we have an approved vaccine with one shot with high efficacy. So uh, for people at risk and, of course, for infants, this is an important advance.
1: Are there any public health measures you'd like to see people put back in place or at least consider mm. uh, as we move forward to uh, the end of the year?
2: Yeah, well, I, I know one of the things you're thinking about is masks. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they are one really good way that works against all these viruses. Uh, these are all respiratory viruses. So that's one thing, particularly high quality KN95, N95 masks. Um the other things, of course, are ventilation. Whereby, uh, if you're in offices or places uh, that are congregating people, that that it has really good ventilation, air filtration. That's really quite important. We don't pay enough attention to it. Avoiding, you know, when you can, those kind of places and crowds uh, is is useful too when that's possible. So we know all the, the different strategies. Uh, that will help mitigate exposure to respiratory viruses. The problem is a lot of people just don't take that seriously.
1: Any final thoughts on what you think uh, we should all be keeping in mind in terms of COVID?
2: Well, the main thing is don't get the sense that COVID is, is gone, that it's, we're done with it. It's not done with us, and we have to really take this virus seriously. It will be out there as a continual threat for years to come, and if this current BA 2.86 that we're concerned about, if that doesn't turn out to be the one, we may well see the one, you know, in the next year or two that causes a major wave of infections across the globe. So, people who think this thing is over, they just have it wrong, Jade. It's not anywhere close to being over. The only thing we can hope is have as much quiet time as possible, which basically we were able to enjoy from March uh, until now. The longer those periods of the virus being relatively contained, the better.
1: Sounds like we all need to continue exercising caution here. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, Director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, as always, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Jade.
1: Do you have any questions for Dr. Eric Topol? We'll share them on the show. Give us a call at 619-452-0228. You can leave a message or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. Coming up, the reason behind year-long delays to get a passport or global entry pass.
3: After everything was kind of put on pause, it's, it's created this real influx uh, that's, that's leading to longer wait times.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego
0: at omds.ucsd.edu.
1: Welcome back to Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Travel this summer came back in a big way, especially international travel, which has seen significant increases after a dormant few years during the coronavirus pandemic that really limited international travel for a lot of people. But the increased demand has led to longer-than-normal wait times for passports and other travel documents, causing headaches for many international travelers, particularly here in San Diego. And now government agencies and leaders are starting to respond. Here to tell us more is Axios San Diego reporter Kate Murphy. Kate, welcome to Midday Edition. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Glad to have you here. When did this backlog start and what's behind it?
3: Yeah, so there's right now been really since February of this year is when uh, the State Department sort of updated their processing times for passports. And they have done it a few times, kind of like change the the timeframe that, that travelers can expect. So uh, since March, it now takes 10 to 13 weeks for routine processing times. And then you can add expect to add up to four weeks on top of that for mailing time. Um, and so previously, you know, before this kind of influx of, of applications and requests, um, in January, the the routine was was six to nine weeks to kind of put that in perspective. Uh,
1: that is a, a huge difference. So what is behind the backlog?
3: Really, the, the the surging demand for international travel this year has contributed to this backlog that has led the State Department to increase those processing times. Um, and so they've said that you know they're getting half a million applications a week for passports earlier this spring, uh, which is a thirty to forty percent increase from last year, which is a, a pretty dramatic rise and the demand this year is expected to break last year's record as well, uh, which was nearly 22 million passports. So it's really that, you know, people are looking to travel again, um, they want to go to these international destinations. And, you know, after everything was kind of put on pause, it's it's created this real influx uh, that's that's leading to longer wait times.
1: Wow. And while travelers can expedite their passport application, there are limitations to that and even added delays. So what's going on there?
3: Yeah, so the expedited timelines are also longer than usual. It's taking seven to nine weeks instead of the typical three to five weeks um, for expedited passports. And there's a a $60 fee. And you can also pay more to get faster shipping and delivery, which could cut back that mailing time. But it's still still a long process. I mean, well, what are
1: you hearing from travelers in in terms of, of not being able to get the passport when they need it?
3: Well, a lot of people just aren't able to make their trips or in some extreme cases, people are traveling to other states, buying a new flight to get an appointment at another passport center um, in a different state to try to make their trip, which is, you know, really kind of drastic measures, but there's only so much you can do when when the process is kind of out of your hands.
1: Yeah, wow. I mean, are there are there any other options that travelers have if if their trip is coming up soon, and they're still waiting for their passport?
3: So one thing that travelers can do is reach out to our representatives in Congress, Um, they can They sort of act as a liaison with the State Department, and so they can help residents who have either pending passport applications and upcoming travel uh, to get through the process faster. They can flag a case to the State Department, they can ask for an earlier appointment date for someone, and just share travel information that kind of can can speed up the process for, for someone who has an upcoming trip. Definitely, it's it's a you know they're also receiving an influx of those requests um, more than kind of in years before, and so it is it's tougher right now for them to secure new appointments, and they're really only kind of looking at passport cases where there's urgent situations, in cases of life or death emergencies, or if you know, a family member has died and and there's um, kind of that more urgent travel versus just a vacation. And certainly proper documentation is is required for that. But there are definitely one outlet, a resource that we have that we can use. Um, and there are also private, like third-party vendors. Um, one is called Rush My Passport. And you can pay, you know, $600 to try to get your passport in two weeks or 800 to get it, you know, by next week. Um, but even that is still going to have a delay. So it's kind of hard to tell, even when you're, you know, paying a lot of extra money, um, how quickly, how much you can really expedite, um, that process, depending on how soon your trip is.
1: Wow. And passports aren't the only things facing a delay. You also reported on delays with the global entry program. Can you explain what that program is and why it is uh, so important for a lot of people here in San Diego?
3: Yeah, so the Global Entry Program is a U.S. Customs and Border Protection program that basically offers expedited clearance for pre approved low risk travelers when they arrive in the United States. So it's designed to speed up re entry after international trips, and travelers use automatic kiosks instead of waiting in those long um, customs lines. And, you know, I think. The problem with global entry here is that, you know, is really the time it takes to get an appointment or an in-person interview, which is the last step in that application process. And I mean, it seems like just part of that demand is because international travel is so accessible and prevalent here at the US-Mexico border. So, you know, whether it's Um, people going away for weekend trips or, you know, commutes. I mean, people live and work on both sides of the border. And so there's just at at such a busy port of entry, um, San Diego is kind of like gonna have that. It, It sort of makes sense that that demand would be higher here compared to other cities across the country.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. I'm speaking with Axios San Diego reporter Kate Murphy about the increased delays in passports we're seeing in San Diego and across the country. And I want to turn the conversation now to government agencies. I mean, what's being done to address the backlog of passport and global entry applications for travelers, Kate?
3: Yeah, so right now um I mean especially for for global entry here locally it's you know the the next apo- available appointment isn't until June of next year um and so you know as we're seeing kind of the I mean the government is well aware of these delays they're they're trying to provide us with a lot of information to um I think you know temper our expectations um and you know in addition to our representatives in, in Congress being able to help us, um, you know, I, I can't really speak to a ton of the improved processes, but I know that uh, the State Department has, has told Axios that it's working to get back to pre-pandemic processing times by the end of the year. And they're doing that by authorizing, you know, tens of thousands of overtime hours for staffers, hiring additional staff, even bringing in volunteers to work through these applications. They've been doing that throughout the this past spring and summer, and um, the National Passport Information Center has also tripled its available phone help lines and now offers weekend services, um, which we've also seen locally in San Diego with local governments agencies, you know, trying to keep up with that demand and sort of uh, extend services um, and and add more appointments to their to their calendar. Hmm.
1: Do they feel that those measures have been helpful? And reduced wait times in any way?
3: It's kind of hard to tell, you know, once they're each at different steps in the process. But I know that at least locally, our Congress members have been able to secure uh, new appointments for people and get them their passports before their upcoming travel in, in hundreds of cases here locally. So um, we do know that it it is helping in some cases. Again, a lot of those are for more urgent um, and and emergency situations rather than just traditional, you know, international vacations. I'm also wondering if you're seeing any
1: silver lining here in terms of the government improving how these documents can be processed more efficiently. I mean, for example, uh, when I renewed my passport, I was surprised when they wouldn't allow me to pay for the passport application with my debit card. And there are other forms of payment they won't accept either. What can you tell me about
0: that?
3: Yeah, it really does seem unusual that, you know, you can only pay with a check or a money order. Thankfully, the I mean, at least locally, the city of San Diego clerk can issue a money order for a small fee um if you're using the the passport services downtown. But um yeah, I mean it really is hard to it's hard to know um what that silver lining might be and and the timeline really is unclear on when this will improve, other than, you know, their goal um to kind of get back to to normal processing times uh, by the end of this year.
1: Yeah. Do you have any suggestions or tips for travelers looking to get a passport or a sentry card right now?
3: Yeah, the number one thing I think is just plan ahead um, and check early and often for appointment openings. Um, certainly with the, the global entry, people do cancel their appointments and those slots open up online. So it's a really good practice to... If you're, you know, you know you have upcoming travel, to check the website on weekday mornings, uh, especially on Mondays, for those random openings. Um, as long as you can be flexible, and uh, San Diego is also lucky to have two um, pa- uh, two sites for global entry, one at the airport. So in some cases, travelers who are already in the system and have pending approval can complete their in-person interviews on site at the airport without. Having one of those pre-scheduled appointments. So if you're lucky enough to kind of have have that align, um, it's definitely a good option. But absolutely check other countries' rules. Make sure your passport's up to date. If if you're even thinking about taking a weekend trip, you know down to Mexico, Mexico, or flying to another international destination.
1: Do you think that people perhaps might have better luck just showing up? at the passport office, um, rather than waiting for an appointment. I mean, s- surely sometimes appointments get canceled or missed. So how lucky would you be if you just showed up to the passport office, the lot li- at the library or post office or whatever?
3: Yeah, I know that they, you know, require appointments in, in most cases, I, I think, really the the in-person services are going to be for urgent international travel um like within 14 days or uh, f- for foreign visas. and so I think you know it it might be worth a shot um but definitely checking online um for those those cancellations that kind of pop up um could be could be a better bet it, it's really hard to say or maybe you might have a nice a nice employee who's willing to let you um, slip in but it's hard to say. (laughs)
1: I've been speaking with Kate Murphy, reporter with Axios San Diego. And Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Coming up, an excerpt from the Cinema Junkie podcast about TCM underground films. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition.
0: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or Hohenmotors.com.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. TCM Underground was recently canceled, but for more than 15 years, it showcased films that had been ignored, underappreciated, or misunderstood. Former TCM programmer Millie Decherico and Quintoya Murray recently wrote a book called TCM Underground, 50 Must-See Films from the World of Classic Cult and Late Night Cinema. KPBS cinema junkie Beth Accomando spoke with Decherico about what films qualify as underground.
4: So, Millie, you have a new book, TCM Underground 50 Must-See Films. So, first of all, let's just kind of lay the ground rules down for what kind of films actually qualify for this TCM Underground label.
5: When I was programming the franchise, I was just trying to cast a wide net of Possible titles. A lot of it was kind of from that kind of standard cult canon. So, you know, directors that we all know and love, like David Lynch and Ed Wood and John Waters and, you know, Roger Corman films and whatnot. But over the years, I think I was trying to expand it a little bit and try to pull in some quirky melodramas and some offbeat comedies. So I was just trying to kind of create like a big pool to choose from. And at this point, I feel like that's kind of the the thing that really unites the titles that have aired. And there was over 400 or something by the end of it. But I, I feel like it's anything that's just kind of a little off offbeat and interesting and various levels of cult, obviously, but they all kind of just fit into this like late night attitude. Well, I just
4: love kind of the diversity of the films that are in there because, you know, you have some that are... I think, underappreciated and incredibly well-made, like Honeymoon Killers. But then you also have some stuff that's, you know, Hollywood produced with studios and much more mainstream. So kind of what were some of the films that you really wanted to see included in this?
5: Between Toy and I, I felt like you know, we have our own sort of personal experience with films, but also, you know, we're women of color. And so we thought, okay, well, we definitely gravitate towards that. We, we, A lot of the films that we featured were either made by women or queer filmmaker or people of color. So it was just that kind of thing. And that wasn't really intentional necessarily, but it was like we have an opportunity to kind of go through the the list and pick films and why don't we talk about something like this versus again something that had been talked about a lot already and you're right i mean some of these movies are really obscure like i think the pyramid is a perfect example of that
3: have you ever experienced your own death
2: any of you you should try it sometime
5: i believe there is magic real magic you know, that's something that had aired on TCM Underground a long time ago, but is hard for people to watch because it was just not really out there for people to rent or or whatnot. And that one in particular, I think people have told me about as being like a pretty obscure pick. But then when we had the opportunity to write about a John Waters movie, I was like, well, why don't we why not, you know, talk about Polyester, which is actually his most commercial film, like at that point. Like he had, you know, of course made like pink flamingos, but polyester was the first one where he actually got like a big studio budget and because it just felt to me like, well, if everyone's going to talk about pink flamingos, then like maybe we can talk about polyester, which I actually think is a has a lot more transgressive moments, if you will, than a lot than a lot of people would maybe think.
3: caught oh, you didn't I, right in the act of adultery. Well, I won't stand for this, Elmer.
5: I want a divorce and a big fat settlement to go along with it. Like I said, we were trying to cover a spread. Uh, And there's definitely different, like, levels of filmmaking and levels of money, I guess, involved. So, And tell people how
4: the book is divided up because you kind of group the films in categories, not exactly genres, but kind of into some subcategories.
5: Yeah, I you know, it's funny because we went back and forth a little bit about how to arrange the book because I'm obviously a big student of these types of books, right? So I grew up reading like the Danny Perry cult movies books and, you know, the Psychotronic Guide to Film. And, you know, I was really about film reference guides because, you know, I grew up in the era before the internet. So that's all I had. (laughs) And a lot of those books were um, alphabetical. Right. And so when we came to this book and trying to set on how to organize it, we thought, okay, well, we could just do it alphabetically. Sure. But I think me being a programmer, it just was sort of like, well, I like arranging things by themes, really. And you're right. It's not like specifically by genre, but we went through the list and we did see some like commonalities between titles. You know, some of them are more broad than others. Like there's a big section that's just kind of like mind melters and, and strange films. And that's kind of a catch all for a lot of different things. But then, you know, we do have, you know, films, like a section that's specifically about crime and, you know, specifically about, I guess, like melodrama. It was just fun to do it that way. I think it makes it kind of interesting. It allows people to kind of like pop around a little bit more than I think if it was alphabetical.
4: Well, it's also the kind of thing where if you want to try and find something you haven't seen and you're in a certain mood, it's nice because you can go like, oh, yeah, I kind of want to see something like horror. And then you have the Fright Club section with some really nice, diverse selections in there. But then you can kind of pick your your
5: mood to match what uh, you might be looking for. Oh, definitely. Like sometimes, yeah, you're definitely in the mood to be scared and you just pop over to that section. Or sometimes you're just like, well, I just want to watch something weird. And maybe like I'll head to the weird section and then watch like Head by, you know, the monkey's head or whatever. The monkeys.
0: Mickey, Davey, Mike, Peter in Head. That's right. Head. What's it all about? Only Victor Mature's hairdresser knows for sure
5: are you kidding yeah that that to me is like really useful as somebody who watches a lot of movies because you don't necessarily when you when you're out in like streaming services or when you're just there you don't see things by tone right you see see things usually alphabetically or just basically like in these kind of like algorithmic categories so it's kind of cool that you could do that with the book well, talking about one of the ones that's kind of the mind
4: melters, weird ones that's out there, um, the Belladonna of Sadness is one that I don't think gets talked about or appreciated as much as it should.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's such a such a interesting animated film. And we were really, really thankful to have the opportunity to play that restored version when it came out. And I just think it's such a gem. There's just so many people that have discovered it for the first time only recently. And the animation style is unreal. It's just so lyrical and beautiful. And I know that the story itself is kind of hard to process sometimes. But the when you match that tone with kind of like what you're seeing, it just creates this like you know, really interesting sort of dichotomy of of content, but then the style. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's such a cool movie that I, I really, really just feel like pe- a lot of people haven't seen it and should, you know. And
4: how did you kind of gravitate towards these films initially? Was this something that you've always kind of liked these kind of movies? Or was there kind of some seminal moment where you saw something and said, like, wow, they're making this stuff. And where can I find more of it?
5: Yeah, you know, I think when I was a teenager, I just was really interested in countercultural things like transgressive art, like punk rock. And, you know, I would hang out at the video stores that I would frequent and just like listen to people talk. Like I listened to people come in the video store and talk about like their favorite movies. And it was, it was just sort of like everything. I just wanted to be around it. And then I watched a lot of TV At the time, you know, there wasn't a ton of cable channels, but, you know, some of them had like late night stuff. And then HBO, of course, was a huge thing for me. So, and just to reference another one of
4: the categories, I do love the domestic disturbances because this brings together like a lot of films that maybe wouldn't always be grouped together. But I mean, these are wonderful. You've got polyester and eating Raul and possession and remember my name and then secret ceremony.
0: Secret ceremony. A tense, suspenseful drama of human desire in its deepest, most sinister aspect.
5: But Chenji's still a child. Chenji a child. Oh, that's disgusting. Yeah, th- this was, um, you know, obviously, like, a section that I was very involved in, <laughs> because I, I like melodrama and even the classic stuff like the Douglas Sirk stuff and you know I love a Joan Crawford 50s vibe and but I felt like there were certain titles that I think were sort of generally categorized as like a horror film like Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker an
0: unsuspecting boy comes home to murder suddenly his life becomes a nightmare did you kill him No. Was it the vicious act of a tormented stranger or is it someone close to home? Caught in a web of bloody horror, he must find the truth or be the next victim. A chilling nightmare explodes in pure terror. See butcher Baker nightmare maker rated R starts Friday
2: at a theater near you.
5: It was kind of like, well, this movie also kind of a melodrama too, because it deals with like an aunt and her nephew and, There's kind of this um, this kind of melodramatic element to it because she is like, I mean, you know, it kind of delves in that sort of uh, grand dame guignol theme, which is, you know, an older woman who's trying to trap somebody that she loves right and i'm like that is a function of melodrama as well as horror right and so i felt like okay well a lot of these movies are are, are weird melodramas and the same thing with secret ceremony which i mean i wouldn't say that secret ceremony is a straight-up horror film but that movie is very strange and it, de- it definitely deals with family are you hurt who
1: was
0: he there are doors to lock against the terror outside
5: but what about the evil within?
4: Yes. Jenchi, this has got to stop. I want to defeat twice god. No! no.
5: No. And, and sort and the other thing about it is that these are largely stories about women too. Which melodrama, I think, was maligned for so long because they were women's pictures and they were about women's stories and stuff. So I kind of wanted to like reclaim a little bit of of that and say, well, you know, these are actually like really interesting, compelling, deeply strange titles sometimes, even though they're sort of like pushed off into like that melodrama category And a lot of these films, too, feel like they feel like comfort food in
4: a sort of way. They're the films that you return to because there is something. And I think there's also something special about films that don't have everything at their disposal in terms of budget and studio backing that makes what they've accomplished kind of like all the more wonderful to appreciate.
5: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a couple of these films that I sort of watch sort of Semi regularly, like I always try to watch The salad Partner at Christmas, just because it feels like you have to. The world of that movie is really interesting, and it's kind of cozy because it takes place during Christmas time. Even though there's like a huge crime going on, but but then there's stuff like like when you watch The World's Greatest Sinner, that that movie is kind of awe inspiring because it is truly like one man's singular vision it may not be a hundred percent watchable at every moment, but it's sort of the audacity of it in a weird way is it is just sort of like part of why you're there. So yeah, it's different, different tones. I mean, it's like 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 some of these movies, yeah, they they maybe are hard to watch over and over and over again, but sometimes just like watching something a little rough around the edges or something that's just very specifically like one person's vision at all costs is fascinating.
1: That was Beth Accomando speaking with author Millie Decherico. You can hear the full interview at kpbs.org slash Cinema Junkie. That's it for today's Midday Edition. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening.